This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Ruth was a lady in her 70s who was very religious and heavily involved in the church in her local community. She taught Bible studies in schools and was highly regarded in the town where she lived. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called Dead Woman Walking. The grandmother was a Bible studies teacher. What happened to her? A young boy named Bill Pelkey lived in the town of Gary, Indiana in the US. When he grew up, he would think back to his childhood and there was one person that he remembered with great fondness, his grandmother Ruth, or as everyone called her, just simply Nana. He recalls baking in the kitchen with her and he also loved it when she read books to him and told him Bible stories. Ruth was very religious and attended the local Baptist church where she was involved in many of the church programs, including teaching Bible lessons at Sunday school. Bill remembers that she had a very engaging way of telling stories, which is not really seen anymore. She used what was called a flannel graph or flannel board. It was a board covered with flannel material or felt. The board would be painted with a background scene and then paper cutouts of characters or objects would be placed on the board to tell the story and the characters could be moved around. Bill used to love when Nana would let him put the characters on the board and he was totally engrossed in the Bible stories that she would tell him. He remembers the stories of David and Goliath, Noah's Ark, Jonah and the Whale, but his favourite was Joseph and his coat of many colours. Then when Bill had his own children, he would watch her telling his children the same Bible stories, which brought back such fond memories of his own childhood. Ruth was well known in her town for being a Bible studies teacher, so it didn't come as a surprise when one day three high school girls came to her house asking about wanting to have Bible lessons. Ruth invited the girls inside and said that she would just go into the other room and get the information about the lessons. But the 78-year-old grandmother had no idea that it was not the Bible lessons that they were interested in. Just as she turned to leave, one of the girls grabbed a vase from a table and struck her on the head with it. After falling to the floor, one of the other girls got on top of her, saying that they wanted money, but Ruth said she didn't have any money. The girl then said in a threatening way, Where's the money, bitch? She then pulled out a knife and began stabbing Ruth, while the other two girls began ransacking the house looking for money. Ruth was repeatedly stabbed, and during the brutal assault, she was also saying the Lord's Prayer. The girl then went and helped to look for money, but that wasn't the end of the trauma for Ruth, as one of the other girls took over the stabbing. They were only able to find $10 and then fled from the house in Ruth's own car. Ruth was left on the floor where she would eventually succumb to her injuries. Later that day, Ruth's son had tried to phone her, but there was no answer. After not being able to get a hold of her, he went over to her house. 
where he was confronted with the horrific scene of his dead mother. It was only a few days later that the girls were apprehended, after they had been bragging about what they had done. There had actually been a fourth girl waiting outside the house as a lookout. The police investigation was able to establish the following sequence of events. The four girls had been at school. One was 14 years old, two were 15, and the other was 16. It was during their lunch break that they decided to skip school. They went to one of the girls' houses, where they drank alcohol and smoked marijuana, and then planned to go to a local arcade to play video games. But they didn't have any money and began discussing how they would get some money. That's when one of the girls said she knew an old lady who lived near her who gave Bible lessons. The girl had taken the lessons herself and knew the lady lived alone and that she might have some money. So they agreed that they would go and rob her. The girl who knew her said it would be best if she waited outside and kept a lookout as the old lady might recognize her. So they knocked on the door and when she answered, they said, Mrs. Pelkey, we'd like to take your Bible lessons and the rest we already know. The coroner was able to determine that Ruth had been stabbed an unbelievable 33 times. As can be expected, the crime shocked the town where they lived, particularly as they were such young girls. The prosecution called for the death penalty for all four girls. However, it was ultimately decided to only pursue the death penalty for the two girls who had actually stabbed Ruth. Both of these girls pled guilty, thus avoiding a trial. When reading the statement of one of the girls, I was horrified, and be warned that this is graphic. She admitted to twisting and turning the knife in Ruth's body for 15 to 20 minutes. Now when I read this, I really could not believe that this was true, and I really hoped that this was an error in the news article and that it was meant to say 15 to 20 seconds. But I wasn't able to actually clarify this. The girl was facing the death penalty or a 60-year sentence, with the judge ultimately deciding on 60 years. And the only reason he didn't impose the death penalty was because he felt that she had been under the influence of one of the other girls who had been deemed the ringleader. The girl who had known Ruth and came up with the idea to rob her was sentenced to 25 years in prison, even though she had not been in the house. The girl who hit Ruth on the head was given 35 years in prison. So that brings us to the last girl. She was the one who brought the knife and was thought to have been the ringleader. Bill's father, who had found Ruth, was one of the witnesses and he stated his wish for her to receive the death penalty. After his deliberations, the judge then addressed the courtroom with his decision. He firstly spoke about when he graduated law school in 1959 and how at that time he was opposed to the death penalty and that the majority of the people in the US did as well. But then he went on to say how over time the pendulum had swung in the opposite direction with the majority now favouring it. He said his decision was based on the laws in the state of Indiana, which meant that he had no choice but to sentence her to death. She became the youngest female on death row. 
When Bill heard the verdict, it was what he had also wanted. He said, I felt as if they didn't give the death penalty to the person who murdered Nana. Then they were telling me and the rest of my family that my grandmother was not an important enough person to merit the perpetrator being sentenced to death. Well, I thought Nana was a very important person, and for that reason alone, I had no problem that the death penalty was given. So now with the sentencing over, Bill tried to get back to his life. He had worked at a place called Bethlehem Steel as an overhead crane operator for 20 years. On one particular day, about three months after the sentencing, he was at work sitting inside his crane. Working alone in the crane gave him time to think about a lot of things. On this day, his mind went to thoughts of his dear Nana. Here is his recollection. As I sat back in my chair, I began to think about Nana's life and her death. As tears came into my eyes, I asked God, why? I asked God why he had allowed one of his most precious angels to suffer such a terrible death. Nana was a good Christian woman. Our family was a good Christian family. I asked God why our family had to suffer so. As I thought about Nana, my mind flashed back to the courtroom on the day that Blank was sentenced to death. As the judge began to deliver his sentence, there was an old man sitting in the galley that began to cry and wail very loudly, saying, They're going to kill my baby. They're going to kill my baby. The judge looked over to the bailiff and said, Bailiff, escort that man from the courtroom. He's disrupting the proceedings. I remembered watching as the old man walked by me as he was being led out of the courtroom. Tears were coming out of his eyes and rolling down his cheeks. I found out later that he was the girl's grandfather. I also recalled as she was being led off to death row. There were tears coming out of her eyes, rolling down her cheeks and onto her light blue dress, causing dark blotches. And here is Bill himself speaking about what he was thinking at the moment when she was sentenced to death and when he saw her grandfather crying. I began to think about my grandmother. There had been a beautiful picture taken of my grandmother shortly before her death. And this is the picture was in the paper whenever the papers would do a story about her death or about the trials. And I began to envision this picture in my mind but with one distinct difference. I envisioned tears come out of Nana's eyes and streaming down Nana's cheeks. And I knew that they were tears of love and compassion. I knew that Nana would not want his grandfather to have to go through what a grandfather would have to go through to see a granddaughter that he loved very much strapped into the electric chair and the volts of electricity put to her till she was dead. He went on to say, I also thought about how Nana had invited her into her home to tell her about Jesus. I felt that Nana would have wanted someone from our church, family or community to be more interested in trying to continue to share that faith to the girl rather than being so interested in seeing her put to death. I began to think about Nana's love for Jesus and I immediately thought of three things that Jesus had to say about forgiveness. The first thing I thought was about the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. This is where Jesus said, If you want your Father in heaven to forgive you, then you need to forgive others. I also thought of when Jesus was teaching the disciples about forgiveness, and Peter asked, How many times are you supposed to forgive? Seven times? Jesus answered by saying, Seventy times seven. I knew that that didn't mean 
that you forgave 490 times and then ceased to forgive, but that Jesus was saying forgiveness should be a habit, a way of life. The third thing that I thought about that night in the crane cab was when Jesus was crucified. I envisioned the nails in his hands and feet and the crown of thorns on his brow and Jesus looking up to heaven and saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. I thought to myself that she didn't know what she was doing. Anyone who takes a butcher knife and stabs someone 33 times doesn't know what they are doing. What happened that day was a crazy, 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 senseless act. I knew that forgiveness would be the right thing and thought maybe someday I would try to forgive her. It had been a year and a half since Nana's death and whenever I thought about her, I envisioned how she died and it was absolutely horrendous. I pictured someone that I loved dearly butchered on the dining room floor of her home. This is where we spent every year on Christmas Eve. This is where we went for Easter, Thanksgiving, birthdays and other happy, joyous occasions. We would sit around the large dining room table and have wonderful meals and a great time. To picture her butchered on that dining room floor was terrible. When I say butchered, that's how I saw it. The autopsy report said that not only had she been stabbed 33 times with a 12-inch butcher knife, but they had a section of the carpet that was under Nana's body in the courtroom that day. They showed how the carpet had been shredded by the knife. They also had pictures of the hardwood floor that was beneath the carpet. The pictures showed how the hardwood floor had been bruised and splintered by the knife. I envisioned her butchered on the dining room floor, but when my heart was touched with love and compassion, forgiveness took place, and I knew from that moment on I would no longer picture how Nana died, but I would picture how she lived, what she stood for, what she believed, and the beautiful, wonderful person that she was. And I knew that I did not need to see someone else die in order to bring healing from Nana's death. A tremendous healing had taken place within me. God had done something wonderful. For years, I've used different words to describe that experience. I've called it a miracle. I've called it an epiphany. I've called it a mountaintop experience. And I have said that it felt like I'd been born again. I was transformed. And here is Bill talking about when he tried to make contact with the girl through writing letters. Um, I wrote her a letter. I explained to her that I had forgiven her. I did not know if she would write back or not. Uh, fortunately, about 10 days later, I did get a letter from her. And we get, began a, a series of correspondence. But even if she would have never written back, the forgiveness still would have been in place. Because I knew that night in the crane that something very special had happened to me and it was a life-changing event. Paula told me in her letters that my forgiving her did a lot for her. Um, she didn't really understand for a long time why I had done what I had done. Um, but she began to learn about forgiveness. There was people in her family that had done her wrong, and she became to where she was able to forgive them for what they had done to her. Um, and she became a, a, a strong Christian lady uh, involved with the services uh, that the prison uh, through prison ministries. But she had strong faith in God. Then Bill found out that his grandmother's case had received a lot of media attention in Italy. 
he received a phone call from a journalist in Italy who said that a group calling themselves Don't Kill had gathered signatures for the girl not to be executed. The journalist was planning to come to Indiana and wanted to interview Bill. She said to him, We in Italy don't picture Americans as being very forgiving people. When we come and do our interviews, do you mind if we come to talk to you? Bill agreed and they came to do the interview and also went and spoke to the girl in prison. The article appeared in the three largest newspapers in Italy and then a short time later, Bill got a call from a TV program in Italy who asked if he would come to Italy to be on their program and talk about the case, to which Bill agreed. The group Don't Kill had been created by two priests and they drove Bill around to schools and churches in Rome where he spoke about the case and he also got the chance to go to the Vatican and speak on Vatican radio. He said here, Being raised as a Baptist from the time I was a little boy, I never thought I'd ever go to the Vatican. And now here I was on Vatican Radio. I spoke on the national and international segments. I talked about love and compassion and forgiveness. I told of Nana's love for Jesus and talked about the healing power of forgiveness. I told the listeners that I didn't want the girl strapped in the electric chair and her life taken from her. Bill went back to Italy a few more times and each time petitions were gathered calling for the girl to be removed from death row. And can you believe even Pope John Paul II got involved and asked the governor of Indiana to stop the execution. And through all the pressure exerted, Bill and the other supporters got their wish. She was taken off death row and her sentence was commuted to 60 years in prison. Shortly after the decision, Bill decided to take part in a two-week march against the death penalty. The march would start at death row in Florida and end at the burial site of the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Atlanta, Georgia. So, Bill drove to Florida and went to the registration table to sign up for the march. One of the organisers was sitting at the table, a lady named Sister Helen Prejean. She was to go on to write a book three years later called Dead Man Walking, which was made into a movie starring Susan Sarandon, who went on to win the Academy Award for Best Actress for playing Sister Helen. Hence, I called this episode Dead Woman Walking. Bill got to know Sister Helen, and here is what he learned while going on the march. I began to get a real education about the death penalty. I learned how it cost more to execute a person than it does to keep them in prison for the rest of their life. One person on the march had co-authored a book called In Spite of Innocence that told of 23 people who were executed in the 20th century and later proven to be innocent. I learned about innocent people who were presently on death row. I learned there are no rich people on death row, only poor ones. I learned many of the people on death row had ineffective counsel. The thing that got me the most was walking down the highways with people who had loved ones on death row. There were daughters with fathers on death row, wives with husbands on death row, and mothers with sons on death row. I realized that if you execute somebody, you create more victim family members. 
It was on this march with Sister Helen that I dedicated my life to the abolition of the death penalty. Bill went on to create the organisation The Journey of Hope from Violence to Healing in 1993. He bought a 24-foot bus and travelled to executions and speaking engagements in 40 different states and 15 countries and he also wrote a book in 2003 called Journey of Hope. And here is the key message which he shared wherever he went. Forgiving the perpetrator does not mean to forgive and forget. I can never forget what happened to Nana. Many people think forgiving means you only want the perpetrator to just get a slap on the wrist for their crime. That is not true. There must be a consequence for crime. Forgiveness benefits the forgiver much more than it does the offender. Forgiveness frees you. If one does not get rid of the hate and anger, it will become like a cancer and destroy you. I am on everybody's side, the victim's side and the perpetrator's side. There is only really one side anyway, and that is the human side. It's natural to be on the side of victims. Anyone with any compassion is on the victim's side, but it takes a special compassion to be on the perpetrator's side. That is why I say that the answer is love and compassion for all of humanity. And now Bill talks here about finally getting to visit the girl in prison. The first time I wrote Paula was in 1986. And she told me how to be able to go about visiting with her. I wrote a letter as she said I needed to do, but the Department of Corrections in the state of Indiana would not allow us to visit. And actually for eight years they would not allow us to visit. By the time I was able to visit her the first time, she was already off of death row. The first visit came uh, on Thanksgiving Day in 1994. Uh, I was able to drive three hours to go to the prison. Uh, I met with her for an hour. Um, I never did ask her why she committed a crime. Uh, when I knew that when you went in to the prison, you were able to greet the person with a hug. And I had seen on an on a interview that she had done that she wanted to look in my eyes and know for sure that I had forgiven her. So I gave her a hug, I stood back, I told her that I loved her and I had forgiven her. Um, we never talked about the crime, but we talked about some people that we had, friends we had in common over the, over the eight years. But the drive home, the three hour drive home, the word wonderful, wonderful, wonderful kept crossing my mind. Because I had just met this person that had done such a terrible thing to my grandmother, such a terrible thing to our family, and yet I didn't have the anger, the hate, the desire for revenge that would have been so easy to have had. But I had the kind of love that I know God wants us to have for each of his children. And to me, that was wonderful. After visiting her a number of times, Bill believed that she was truly remorseful, saying she would take it back in a heartbeat if she could. But she knows she has to live with it for the rest of her life. She knows she took something valuable out of society. She wants to try to give back. She wants to help work with other young people to avoid the pitfalls that she fell into. She wants to try to give back to society. The girl was able to earn a GED while in prison, which is the General Educational Development Test. This provides certification that a person has United States high school level academic skills and is an alternative to the US high school diploma. She also took college correspondence courses, achieving a vocational degree and a bachelor's degree. 
she was involved in mentoring other inmates and became well-respected. While in prison, she was able to earn one day off from her sentence for each day of good behaviour. This reduction in her sentence saw her being released after serving 26 years in the year 2013, which was just seven years ago. She was 43 years old. Before leaving, she said, Seven or eight years ago, I couldn't say that I was ready to go home and I wouldn't tell anybody that because that was a lie. My time is coming and, you know, I just hope that people will give me a chance out there. That's it, because people do change. She also credited Bill for helping to change her life, saying, He's my biggest encouragement. Then, it was five years ago in 2015 when Bill was on his computer and saw an email with the subject, Dad, I'm so sorry. It was from his daughter and she had sent him a link to a news story. The woman who had taken his nana's life had now taken her own life. Bill was devastated, particularly as she had wanted to join his organisation, Journey of Hope. But at that time, she wasn't able to, as her parole stipulated that she could not have any contact with the victim's family for two years. But after that time was up, she was going to work with Bill and was keen to speak to young people who had grown up with abuse like she did. She wanted to tell them not to do what she did, which was to take out her abuse on others. Bill thought that she was doing okay after being released, and no one saw any signs that she would take her life. It happened only two weeks after the 30th anniversary of Ruth's death. So people thought that maybe this anniversary really affected her, and that although many had forgiven her, it seems that she had never forgiven herself. So, after reading all the wonderful things that Bill did in honour of his grandmother, I then came across a news article from only three months ago in November 2019 saying that he sadly passed away at the age of 73. He had been shoveling snow at his home in Alaska and died suddenly of a heart attack. A representative from his foundation made the following statement. The journey of hope from violence to healing is heartbroken to share the news that its founder and visionary leader, Bill Pelkey, died suddenly of a massive heart attack at his home in Anchorage, Alaska on Thursday, November the 12th. We have lost one of the anchors of the movement to abolish the death penalty. So in this story, it was difficult for me to talk about this girl, given what she had done. And as you know, I try to focus on the victims more than the perpetrators. However, given that Bill had forgiven her in honour of his grandmother, I thought that I would follow his lead and discuss the girl as an honour to Bill, as I believe this is what he would have wanted. And also, I'm going to do something which I've never done on my podcast before, and that is to play some audio of the perpetrator. But I thought it was very interesting as it gives you a sense of her state of mind after being in prison for 30 years before she was released. So take a listen and see what you think. I was 15 years old and I couldn't tell you what my mindset was at 15 as opposed to what my mindset is at 42. I really can't. I mean, for maybe 10, 15 years into my sentence, I really didn't even understand what happened. 
Honestly, I, I mean, I sat and tried to figure it all out. And for years, I couldn't figure it out. There was no one in there that was innocent. I mean, this is almost 30 years later, so, I mean, I don't have to try to sugarcoat anything or try to make myself look good in any type of way. There was four of us in there, and all four of us were guilty. I want to tell them that you don't want prison. You start off with these little crimes, and you're out there selling drugs, and you don't want to get a job, and you want to get a felony on your record and run around and think you're cool and cute, and you don't, you don't know what prison is. You know, prison strips you of everything. So what struck me about this was when she said that after 10 or 15 years, she still couldn't figure out what had happened. So it took her that long to realise that she had brutally murdered an innocent, defenceless old lady? Really? And when she said there was no one in there that was innocent, she was referring to the other girls who committed the crime, and she was questioning why she was the only one who initially got the death penalty. So she seems to be saying that the others got off more lightly than she did. If she was truly remorseful, she wouldn't be talking like this, saying, poor me, I got a heavier sentence than the others. So she is thinking about herself and not the victim, making it sound like she was the victim. Then when she was saying, you don't want to go to prison, shouldn't she be talking about not taking a person's life? That's what you shouldn't do. But instead, she's talking about how bad prison is. It's like saying, don't speed because you'll get a speeding ticket. No, don't speed because you could be endangering your life and the lives of others. Now, this audio of her really doesn't make me think much of her. There really doesn't seem to be genuine remorse. She didn't mention Ruth once. There was no apology. The whole thing was about why she got a longer sentence than the others. And don't get yourself in prison because it's not a nice place to be. She should have said taking a person's life is wrong. With all respect to Bill, I'm sorry, but I really don't have any respect for her, that she is talking like this after being in prison for 30 years. A person's words are very telling, and in her case, it struck me what she didn't say. Poor Ruth did not get a mention at all. I used to be in favour of the death penalty, but only in exceptional circumstances where the crime was proven beyond doubt. But it was only when I got into true crime podcasts that I changed my mind. There have been so many people who've been wrongly convicted and then ultimately exonerated. So while these errors are made, I just can't support the death penalty. I can understand what Bill was saying about forgiveness. But whether or not I could do it if a loved one of mine was murdered, I really don't know how I would react in such a situation. I'm not a vengeful person or I don't hold grudges, but when it comes to the murder of someone, who knows how I would feel, but I really hope that um, I never have to be put into that situation. And now let's preview the next episode. It's called The Hermit. A baby girl was born in the Siberian wilderness. What happened to her? And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote. Educators are the only people who lose sleep over other people's children. Bye for now, and remember to be a good apple.